Thank you, Jim, for uh, leading us in that great song. Thank you, Randy and Deanna, for being here. And we, we love you guys. And we will never get tired of hearing about Cote d'Ivoire and Africa and all that you're doing. It's, it's really incredible. We're thrilled about your kids and your grandkids. And we are blessing you in the name of the Lord. As, as I said already, Jim, thanks for singing that song because I uh, feel like I should talk this morning for just a little while about uh, the topic, Why I Have Hope for America. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to first talk a little bit about hope. Second, three fundamental reasons why I have hope for America. And finally, possibly tell you a great American patriotic story if I have time. But that, that'll, uh, I'll just see about that. I love this country, regardless of its flaws and its failings and its shortcomings, and uh, recognizing that probably today she faces her greatest challenges ever. Still, she is the only country we have. And I'm more than anything asking that we would pray for America in a more concerted and a more systematic way than perhaps ever before. On this 234th anniversary of the foundation of our nation, let me tell you why I have hope for our country. First of all, I have hope for America because of you. I believe the church is the greatest hope for America. And I believe that you will do consistently what is right for this country, and you will continue to pray for this nation and its incredible needs. America may not be a Christian nation anymore. That perhaps is debatable, but what I know for sure is it is a land of millions of Christians. Christians that believe in God and believing, believe in the founding principles of this nation. I'd like to uh, begin by just encouraging us to hold on to hope. We cannot go on without hope. Terry Law and uh, Jim Gilbert recently wrote a book called The Hope Habit, and uh, Terry defines hope as a confident expectation of the goodness of God. Or Roberts said, so many times, always when he began to speak, something good is going to happen to you. David Augsburger said, no man can live without hope. It is hope that heals. Hope is the basic energy of civilization, of social existence, of individual life. Tertullian said, hope is patience with the lamp lit. The theologian J.I. Packer explained the difference between optimism and Christian hope. Optimism is a wish without a warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that each day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Of course, true hope 
is hinged on the one historical fact that is unique to Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just share a couple of verses on hope this morning on Independence Day. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. I think especially in this day, we need to learn to wear hope as a helmet around our head. Hebrews 6 says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The signers of the Declaration of Independence eloquently expressed their reliance on God. They had great hope for our nation. In declaring independence for an earthly power, our forefathers made a forthright declaration of dependence upon Almighty God. And for this, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. It's good to remember the facts about those 56 men that signed the Declaration of Independence. They were not poor men. They were not wild-eyed pirates. They lived a comfortable life. They could have enjoyed all the bounty of uh, this new nation, but they considered liberty much more important than the security they enjoyed. Many of them paid with their lives. Of those 56 signers, Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes sacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the army. Nine of them died in the Revolutionary War. A second reason why I have hope for America is that there is a clear evidence, uh, I think it's indisputable, that God's hand was on this nation before its foundation. And I'd like for us to take a look backward for just a few minutes this morning. Genesis 26, 18 says, Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father, Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. As no surprise to you, I want you to know that there are many who are today writing revisionist history, many who do not want us to remember the wells that this nation was founded on. Woodrow Wilson said, a nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today, nor what it is trying to do. We are trying to do a futile thing if we do not know where we came from or what we have been about. Let me, re let me remind you to read some of your old textbooks to rediscover our Christian heritage. Once again, today, I think we need to remember the lessons of our forefathers. We need to redig the old wells and call them by their original names. 
President Calvin Coolidge once said, America was born in a revival of religion. You'll so well remember the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. I believe they changed the spiritual climate of this nation before the Revolutionary War. They were the catalysts for what became known as the First Great Awakening. Most historians, I think, would agree with me that Edwards and Franklin were the two most brilliant minds of America of the 18th century. Edwards entered Yale at, at the age of 13, graduated as a valedictorian at 17, quickly moved to Northampton, Massachusetts to take over the pulpit of his uh, father-in-law. He and uh, Sarah raised a remarkable family of 11 children. And Edwards writes about how when he came to Northampton, it was a time uh, when spiritual, spirituality was at a low ebb. The conditions he describes are very similar to today. Licentiousness for some years greatly prevailed among the youth. Uh, there were many of them addicted to night walking and frequenting the tavern and lewd practices when some of their example exceedingly corrupted others, he wrote. But in 1734, as Edwards was preaching a series of sermons on justification by faith alone, conversions began first the youth and then the elders. He wrote about uh, a notorious young woman who was saved, and it was like a flash of lightning to the young people. Those, uh, they agonized and they rejoiced. And uh, he went on to write, in the summer and the summer following, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God, full of love, and yet so full of distress. Uh, it was a time of great revival. By 1736, Edwards had 300 new converts added, and the revival spread throughout New England. 1741, he wrote uh, and preached his most famous sinner, uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Some have uh, passed this off as religious fanaticism of an earlier era. Yet Edward, Edwards did did not deliver his sermon uh, in what might be described as hellfire and brimstone style, rather with good diction and enunciation. Every word was pronounced, and he typically read his sermons. There was a great move of God among the congregation, and over the next several years, from 1940, 1740 to 1742, 25,000 to 50,000 people were added to the New England churches. And uh, the moral tone of all of New England was changed and came to be known, that time came to be known as the Great Awakening. Move went farther south into the colonies. And there were so many moves of God on this nation. The, the Second Great Awakening began in Kentucky in 1799 in Logan County. Crowds as great as 15,000 would come to hear preaching. There were many manifestations of, of shrieking and crying to the Lord. Then in the uh, 19th century, we had the great uh, evangelist Charles Finney, who uh, was trained as an attorney, and he would say, what will you do with Jesus Christ? He was responsible for impacting 500,000 souls in his lifetime. 
Dwight Moody followed and uh, preached in Chicago and uh, in the United Kingdom. And then uh, followed Billy Sunday, who uh, over a period of 25 years, a former baseball player, uh, history records one, possibly two million souls to Christ. In this century, we've uh, seen the uh, wonderful ministry of Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, the Jesus Movement. And as we come now to the beginning of the 21st century, I believe we need to pray for yet a third awakening. We need it more desperately than we ever have. A third reason I have hope for America are the many evidences that our nation was founded on a commitment to God and the principles of his word. Benjamin Franklin, in the summer of 1787, as he met with the other representatives in Philadelphia as they wrote the Constitution, asked to speak to that great assembly after they had uh, been a disagreeing with one another for several weeks, and they looked like they were ready to go home in uh, uh, disappointment and exhaustion. Franklin, at this time, was 81 years old. He addressed the president of the convention and said, in the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. Have we now forgotten this powerful friend, or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. I therefore beg to move that henceforth prayer is imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning. And so it was. The convention went to prayer for the next several weeks, and uh, we came out with our constitution. There are so many evidences of uh, this nation being established on the principles of God, God's word. Let me just give you a few more very quickly. The goal of government based on scripture was further reaffirmed by individual colonies, such as the Rhode Island Charter of 1683, which begins, we submit our persons, lives, and estates unto our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and to all those perfect and most absolute laws of his, of his given to us in his holy word. Those absolute laws became the basis of our Declaration of Independence, which includes in his first paragraph an appeal to the laws of nature and of nature's God. The very purpose of the pilgrims in 1620 was to establish a government based on the Bible. They had a charter from the King of England to do so. 
our presidents throughout history have reaffirmed the fact that this nation was established on God's word. In his first inaugural address to Congress, the first president of our nation, George Washington, stressed God's role in the birth of this republic. No people can be found to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. We ought to be no less persuaded than the propitious, we ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven cannot be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Calvin Coolidge said the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. John Adams said the first and almost the only book deserving a universal attention is the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said all the good from the Savior of the world is communicated through this book, but for the book we could not know right from wrong. All the things desirable to man are contained in it. He said also it is the duty of nations as well as of men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to re recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The Supreme Court decision of 1892, Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States, stated, our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise, and in this sense, and to this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian. This is a religious people. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation we find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. Supreme Court of the United States, 1892. One of the ambassadors to the United Nations put it this way just some uh, 50 years ago, the good in the United States would never have come into being without the blessing and the power of Jesus Christ. I know how embarrassing this matter is to politicians, bureaucrats, businessmen, and cynics. Whatever these honored men think, the irrefutable truth is that the soul of America is at its best and highest. Christian. These are our foundations. These are the wells that have been dug. And uh, 
This is why I have hope for America. I was talking with Jason Feathers on Thursday, and uh, we both agreed that without God, there is no hope for our nation. There is no hope for a future. But I believe that we must hold on to hope, and we must uh, realize that we can uh, move heaven uh, by our prayers. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever is a prayer-answering God. As Jim Grinnell has recently encouraged us, we need first to pray before we do anything else. I believe America's very future depends on the prayers of her people. I'm not sure that it's accurate to say that America is a Christian nation today, but America is a nation of millions of Christians. And it is these Christians, I believe, that will determine the future of our land. Ronald Reagan, uh, in October 1964, said, you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We will preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we will sentence them to take the first step into a thousand years of darkness. If we fail, at least let our children and our children's children say of us, we justified our brief, our brief moment here. We did all that could be done. And I believe if we will pray for America, we can believe for yet a third awakening. As we, as we look to pray for our nation, I think we need to look to Nehemiah for an example. Nehemiah was appraised of the troublesome situation in Jerusalem, and he began praying, confessing the sins of the children of Israel, and he included himself, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dwelt very corruptly against thee and have kept the commandments and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes or the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. When we pray for America, for our nation, first we need to ask God to forgive our national sins. We need to repent for the sexual perversion we have tolerated as legitimate. We need to repent of the alternate lifestyles that we accept as normal. We need to repent that the foundation of our families has been destroyed, that we no longer hold marriage vows sacred as God does. We need to repent of our sin of legalized murder of over 50 million unborn babies created in the image of God. We need to repent for allowing our children to be indoctrinated with secular humanism in the public schools. We need to confess to God every stand that our nation has taken contrary to his standards of right living. And then we need to plead with God to have mercy on our nation one more time to bring about a national movement of prayer, repentance, and obedience to his laws. Abraham Lincoln prayed a prayer for America in 1863. I believe it's still appropriate. 
He prayed, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Even as the children of Israel repeatedly sinned and walked away from God as God gave them yet another opportunity to repent, there was restoration. I believe that still holds for us as well in America. Let me finish with one patriotic story. Is that all right? Still okay? Andrew Jackson, our seventh president, said, take time to be deliberate, but when the time for action arrives, stop thinking and go in. I'd like to apply this story to the battle that I'm calling us to, to pray faithfully and consistently for our nation. On the hot, humid day of July 2nd, 1863, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, a 34-year-old schoolteacher from Maine, the former professor of rhetoric from Bodwin College, was in the fight of his life stood at the far left edge of a group of 80,000 men strung out in a line across fields and hills, stretching all the way to the little town called Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Earlier in the day, Colonel Vincent placed Chamberlain and the men of the 20th Maine at the end of the line, saying, whatever you do, you can't let them through here. Chamberlain couldn't withdraw, and he knew it. If the Confederate army overran them, the rebels would barricade the high ground and the Union, Union Army of the Potomac would forfeit. In essence, 80,000 men would be caught from behind on a downhill charge with no protection. To win, the rebels would have, have to come through Chamberlain. Chamberlain knew he could not retreat. At 2.30 p.m., the first charge came from the 15th and 47th Alabama, running uphill as, far, as fast as they could and firing at Chamberlain's men stationed on a rock wall that they had thrown up earlier that morning. Chamberlain's men pushed them back. They did it a second and a third time. On the fourth charge, Chamberlain took a bullet to his belt buckle 
He fell over, got back up, and kept fighting, and they pushed the Confederate troops down the hill. While Chamberlain was waiting for the next charge, he thought, I'm a professor of rhetoric. I'm fairly certain I don't have anything anyone would like to learn at this point. He recalled, later I felt sorry for my men. Their leader had no real knowledge of warfare or tactics. I was only a stubborn man, and that was my greatest advantage in this fight. I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. Chamberlain continued, I knew I may die, but I knew that I would not die with a bullet in my back. I would not die in retreat. I'm at least like the Apostle Paul who wrote, this one thing I do, I press toward the mark. And the attack came again, the fifth charge. And uh, after pushing the enemy down the hill five times, Chamberlain's brother Tom came running over to him uh, with Sergeant Tozier, an old hard-nosed soldier. And... Uh, They were telling uh, Chamberlain there's no help from the 83rd. They're shot up to ribbons, and all they can do is extend the line a bit. We're getting murdered on our flank. Can we extend, Chamberlain said. His brother Tom said, there's nothing to extend. More than half our men are down. Chamberlain's company had started from Bangor, Maine, six months earlier with 1,000 men. That morning, they were 300. Now they were down to 80. Yes, how's our ammunition? His brother said, we've been shooting a lot. Chamberlain said, I know we've been shooting a lot. I want to know how much we've got. As his brother went to check, the 12-year-old lookout who had climbed a tree yelled, they're forming up again, Colonel. Sergeant Thomas stumbled in the mist out of breath. Colonel Chamberlain, sir, Colonel Vincent is dead. Are you sure, soldier? Yes, sir. He was shot right at the first of the fight. They were firmed up by Weed's brigade up front, but now Weed's is dead. They moved Hazlitt's battery up top, Hazlitt's dead. His brother came up running Joshua. He said, we're out. We've got one or two rounds per man. Some of the men don't have anything. Chamberlain turned and said to his men, tell the boys to take the ammunition from the wounded and the dead. Chamberlain's men started wondering where they were going to go and what was going to happen. Chamberlain retorted grimly, we will not be pulling out, Sergeant. Carry out my orders, please. As Chamberlain stood there deep in thought, he quickly sorted out the situation. We can't retreat, he thought. We can't stay here. When I'm faced with the choice of doing nothing or doing something, I'll always choose to act. And he turned back on the advancing rebels, looked down at his men, and said, fix bayonets. Can you imagine being given that command? At first, no one moved. They just started, stared at him with their mouths open. We'll have the advantage moving downhill, Chamberlain said. Fix the bayonets now and execute a great right wheel of the entire regime. Swing left first. The lieutenant spoke up, confused. Sir, he asked, what is a great right wheel? But the colonel had already jumped from the rocks and was moving to the, great, to the next group of men. Sergeant Tozier answered his question. He means 
the charge, son. A great right wheel is an all-out charge. His men watched in awe as Chamberlain drew his sword. He leaped up onto the wall again and screamed, bayonets, bayonets. And turning, the colonel pointed the sword directly downhill. He wheeled and faced those overwhelming odds. Slashed his blade through the air. And with a power born of courage and fear, the schoolteacher from Maine roared, charge, charge, charge. The 80 remaining fighting men of the 20th Maine tumbled over the wall after Chamberlain into history. When the Confederate troops saw Chamberlain, the leader of the opposition, mount that wall, they immediately stopped, unsure of what was happening. And when Chamberlain pointed his sword toward them and commanded his men to charge, they turned and ran. Many of them threw down their loaded weapons. The rebels were certain that these were not the same soldiers they'd been facing. Surely these men had massive reinforcements. A beaten regiment wouldn't charge. In less than 10 minutes, Chamberlain had his sword on the collarbone of a captain in the Confederate Army. You, sir, are my prisoner, he said. The man turned a loaded pistol around and handed it to Chamberlain and said, yes, sir, I am. In less than 10 minutes, that ragged group of men under Chamberlain's command, without any ammunition, captured more than 400 soldiers of the enemy. It's a long story, but let me finish it. Historians have determined that had Chamberlain not charged that day, the South would have won at Gettysburg. If the South had won at Gettysburg, historians say the South would have won the war. I always thought that if the South had won, we would be the North and the South, but historians say that had the South won, we would now have a continent that looks more like Europe, fragmented into nine to 13 countries, which means that had Chamberlain not charged when Hitler swept across Europe in the 1940s, the United States of America wouldn't have existed to stand in the breach. When Hirohito systematically invaded the islands of the South, South Pacific, there would not have existed a country big enough, powerful enough, strong enough, populous, and wealthy enough to fight and win two wars on two fronts at the same time. The United States of America exists today because of one man who made a decision to charge. One man decided that he was a person of action. Let me read one more paragraph. Chamberlain became governor of Maine. He served four terms. During the third term, he received further confirmation of the divine protection that surrounded him. A letter arrived at the State House addressed to Governor Joshua Chamberlain from a member of the 15th Alabama. And this is what it said, Dear Sir, I want to tell you of a little passage in the Battle of Round Top, Gettysburg, concerning you and me, which I am now glad of. Twice in that fight, I had your life in my hands. I got a safe place between two rocks and drew bead fair and square on you. You were standing in the open behind the center of your line, fully exposed. I knew your rank by your uniform and accents, and I thought it a mighty good thing to put you out of the way. I rested my gun on the rock and took steady aim. I started to pull the trigger, but some strange notion stopped me. Then I got ashamed of my weakness and went through the same motions again. I had you perfectly certain, but that strange something shut right down on me. 
I couldn't pull the trigger and gave it up. That is your life. I am glad of it now and hope you are. Yours truly, a member of the 15th of Alabama. As we've gone through that long story, I just want all of us to be aware that as we take on the challenge to pray for our nation, regardless of the odds, I believe we can see miracles happen. And uh, I think we need to do that systematically in our prayer meetings, in our home times of prayer. Perhaps God will call us into specific times when we meet. I don't even know that. But I know that we are not to lose hope. And uh, we are to believe that God can still turn things around for America. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this nation that was founded on your word. I thank you for the many great men and women who have followed the teachings of your word and taught the nation to do so. And at this perhaps most critical moment in the history of our nation, we confess our sins. We confess the sin of murdering 50 million unborn children. We consist, con confess the horrors of what we have accepted as alternate lifestyles. We confess all of the uh, lewdness that has been propagated on our televisions as entertainment. Father, we have greatly sinned against you as a nation. But we humble ourselves and ask once again that you might have mercy on us that it would begin with us, ones and twos and threes, perhaps gathering together to pray, and that there might be yet a revival for this century, a great awakening, a coming back to God, and that we might truly be able to proclaim as our forefathers all through history have, in God we trust and we love your word and that we will do all in our power to live by it. Help us to teach these truths to our families, to our children, to our grandchildren, that America might still be that shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan spoke about, the last bastion of liberty that Abraham Lincoln talked about, a place where we still stand for truth, for justice, for what honors God.
Father, we pray that you would begin a work today, and it would not be a short work, but that we would be drawn to prayer, that we would cry out to you in the night watches, in the mornings, whenever you call us to prayer. Father, we pray for our president. We pray, Lord, that you would work in his life. We pray that as he has admired Abraham Lincoln so often in his public comments, that he would also be called to prayer, that he would come to know you in a very personal way, and that he would want truth and righteousness for our land. We pray for our Congress. We pray, Lord, for those men and women who know you in that great house, who are meeting in prayer on a regular basis. Lord, we pray that those prayer meetings will expand and grow greater. And even as we have this great tragedy ongoing in the Gulf, Lord, we pray that our churches, even as, as they prayed last Sunday all through the Gulf Coast, we as a nation would be called to prayer for your divine hand to be extended to us once again. Father, help us, even as Chamberlain's 80 men were courageous and faithful, to be faithful to do what is called of us. Help us to continue to pray for our families to pray for our city, to do what is honorable, what is just, and to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.